thank you for your welcome. It's very nice to be here uh, and to uh, take with you um, a study in the great word perseverance. We find our word in uh, our modern versions of the Bible in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, as you've just heard. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. That's our word. I want to set out before you a cluster of other words which shed light on this one. Perseverance, first, has to do with action. In my youth, perseverance was not a Bible word. Uh, That's to say... um, the Bible I grew up with was the authorised version. And uh, <laughs> I was given a newly published revised standard version as a 21st birthday present. So for my childhood and youth, I grew up with the AV, in which the word perseverance scarcely occurs. It comes just once, in fact, and the verb persevere comes not at all. So if you wanted uh, a Bible study from the King James Version on perseverance, not much to go on. But I did uh, come across the word perseverance, if not in my Bible, um, in a school hymn book. I can remember from the age of something like six or seven uh, what I still think is a rather curious little hymn, which some of you may know. Jesus, good above all other, gentle child of gentle mother, in a stable born our brother, Give us grace to persevere by Percy Dimmer and appearing first in that equally curious hymn book, the English hymnal. Uh, I never quite knew what the word persevere meant. Give us grace to persevere. It, It had a sort of anemic feel about it. And it was um, more than 30 years later that I began to realize that perseverance was uh, something uh, much more than that. I was nearly 40 before I learned to swim. And when I first went to be the vicar of St. Face Maidstone, this fact was discovered by an elderly lady who was a member of the congregation there who had for generations terrorized the school children of Maidstone as their swimming instructor at the local baths. And she took me in hand. Um, I'll give her this, that she took us down to the baths when nobody else was there. And she would train this novice swimmer who could scarcely pick his feet up off the bottom eventually to swim a length. And that was really quite something. And the perseverance consisted in the fact that she would not let me stop. And she would march up the length of the bath while I struggled. I was always running out of puff. I think that was not particularly because I was a poor swimmer, as because I was generally unfit. But I never had quite enough breath. But she assured me I did. Keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. Don't put your foot down on the bottom, she'd say. And eventually I got, with much puffing and blowing, to the other end of the pool. That, I learned, was perseverance. And it was not an anemic, pallid thing. It was not a passive thing. It was a strenuous thing. Now, what the authorized version does with the words which are often in our modern versions translated as persevere and perseverance is usually to translate them patience. The word patience comes many times uh, in the authorized version. That also seemed to me to be rather a colourless sort of word. Patience is just sitting there, waiting for something to happen, I thought. Um, It obviously means something more than that. And sometimes it appears as endurance. And the new translations will sometimes use that word, where the old versions used patience. I think endurance is a bit better. It's still a bit passive, isn't it? You're just still sitting there putting up with it. But nevertheless, I began to realize, as I looked at the subject and began to understand what it meant, was that the authorized patience and endurance were really what the RSV and the NIV frequently translate as perseverance. The patience in the old version 
perseverance in the new version are not passive words. They are not simply describing people who sit there putting up with things, not actually doing anything, but just letting things happen. They are actually words of considerable action. They have to do with strenuous exertion. And you can see that whatever English word you may use, whether as in the Bible in front of me it's perseverance, whether as it was, I think, in the King James, it was patience, what you were doing with patience was running a race. You were not patiently sitting by the side of the track while somebody else puffed his or her way round to the end of the course. You're using your patience to do something. And that, I think, is where our biblical grasp of the meaning and application of the word begins. It is an understanding that perseverance involves activity. And here we have, in chapter 12 of Hebrews, the patient, the persevering running of a race, because, as the opening word tells us, of a whole lot of examples that have been given to us through that very long chapter that precedes Hebrews chapter 11, of a whole lot of people who testify to the fact that perseverance is an active faith. And you find again and again, I don't need to quote the examples to you, as you look back to the beginning of chapter 11 and work your way through it, that here you have instance after instance in Old Testament history of people whose patience, whose perseverance, consisted in an active believing. In every case, it is, it seems, that God said something to them. In some way or other, the word of God came to them, and that word required their active confidence. Again and again, it required them to do something. That is to act on faith. I don't need, as I say, to go through the instances. But you can think of those to whom God said, this is what I want, and they had to get up and do it. And sometimes the doing of it took a very long time which, of course, is where the perseverance comes in. Therefore, says the writer to the Hebrews, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses who understood that faith meant perseverance and perseverance meant action, since you have so many examples as to what faith means, this is what it means, then we also ought in the same way to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and ourselves use perseverance in the active running of the race that is set before us. Perseverance has to do with action. That's the first of the words. Secondly, perseverance has to do with vision. There are a few finer examples of perseverance in Christian literature than that of a man, a character, who appears in the second part of the Pilgrim's Progress. You know, the first part is the journey of the Christian, the pilgrim, on his way from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And he is followed in part two by his wife and sons and others who join them on the journey. And a good long way through the journey, they arrive at a place where there stands in a dangerous point on the road where somebody else has recently been robbed. There stood a man with his sword drawn and his face all bloody. Then said Mr. Greatheart, What art thou? The man made answer saying, I am one whose name is Valiant for Truth. Valiant for Truth is a man of action. But it is very clear that what keeps him going on the pilgrim journey as a man of action is his overall vision of where he's come from and where he is going to. He never forgets it. He always has an eye to the place he's left behind him and an eye to the place he is going to. He is beset by three villains who propounded unto me, he says, these three things, whether I would become one of them, 
or whether I would go back from whence I came, or whether I would die upon the place. To the first I answered, I had been a true man a long season, and therefore it could not be expected that I should now cast in my lot with thieves. Then they demanded what I would say to the second, would I go back from whence I came? So I told them that the place from whence I came had I not found incommodity there, what a wonderful word, incommodity there, I had not forsaken it at all. But finding it altogether unsuitable to me and very unprofitable for me, I forsook it for this way. Then they asked me what I said to the third, whether I would die upon the place. I told them my life was far more dear than I should lightly give it away. And so they fight. And of course he wins. It's the second question that interests me. Would I go back from whence I came? No, I'd uh, found that the place from whence I came, uh, there was incommodity there. And if I hadn't found it that way, I wouldn't have forsaken it at all. But I found it altogether unsuitable. Why? Well, you go on a couple of pages and you discover that Valiant for Truth had set out from dark land, which lies upon the same coast with the city of destruction. That's where he's left. His father and mother are still there. They didn't want him to go. And uh, various uh, arguments were used to try and prevent him even setting out on the journey. But what caused him to set out on the journey, nevertheless, was that we had one Mr. Telltrue come into our parts. And he told it about what Christian had done that went out from the city of destruction. Namely, he'd forsaken his wife and children, betaken himself to a pilgrim's life. And Mr. Telltrue goes on then to recount the whole course of the original pilgrim's life and journey. And in a word, that man so told the story of Christian and his travels that my heart fell into a burning haste to be gone after him, nor could father or mother stay me. So I got from them, and I'm come thus far in my way. Now, he knows what he's left behind, and Mr. Teltrue has told him what lies ahead and the wonderful experience that the Christian had as pursuing his journey, he arrived eventually at the celestial city. All sorts of bad things happened to him on the way. Things that might have discouraged him and made him want either to stop where he was or to turn back to where he'd come from. All sorts of dreadful things were told him on his journey about the dangers that still lay ahead. And did none of these things discourage you? No, says Valiant for Truth, they seem but as so many nothings to me. How came that about? Why, I still believed what Mr. Teltrue had said, and that carried me beyond them all. In other words, he has an eye still very clearly to dark land, which is in the same coast with the city of destruction, and he still believes what Mr. Teltrue tells him about the good things that lie ahead and the celestial city that he is going to. And he keeps both whence he has come and whither he is going in his sights, in his vision. And that's why he keeps on his way. And valiant for truth it is, who continues thus, as he's just told all this long rigmarole to Greatheart, who's been asking the questions. I still believe what Mr. Telter had said, that carried me beyond them all. Ah, then this was your victory, even your faith. It was so, said Valiant for Truth, I believed. That's why I came out, got into the way, fought all that set themselves against me, and by believing I'm come to this place. Who would true valour see, let him come hither. One here will constant be, come wind, come weather. And that's where that magnificent hymn comes from. Bunyan's version is slightly different from what we sang. But the word there is constancy, you see. One here will constant be, come wind, come weather. There's no discouragement shall make him once relent his first avowed intent to be a pilgrim. And it's all because he has the vision of where he's come from and where he's going. He's got the total overview even of the things he's not yet seen himself, he believes what Mr. Teltrue has said concerning them, and he can see it all, and that is what keeps him going. He has an awareness of all that's behind him. He has an awareness of all the witnesses, the great cloud of witnesses who've been that way before. 
He has Jesus as the author of his faith. All the people who say it can be done, we've done it. He's looking back now, you see. And he says, I got all that account that Mr. Teltra has told me about what lies behind me. All the people he's told me about. All the folk that Hebrews 11 tells me about. I have Jesus, who was the one who initiated my walk of faith. I can see all that lies before me by faith. I haven't yet seen it with my eyes. But by faith I know what lies ahead. As Hebrews puts it, there is a race marked out for me. And I can see as I look ahead the direction it's going in. And I can see that Jesus is not only the author of my faith back behind me. He is also the perfecter of my faith away there in front of me. And I know that he will keep me going as he's brought me to this point. So he will keep me the rest of the way. Hitherto, henceforth. Jesus the author, Jesus the perfecter. A great cloud of witnesses, therefore let us run the race that lies before us. Because you can see where you've come from and where you're going. Mr. Valiant for Truth is not the kind of uh, blinkered character, still less is he blindfolded, who simply lays about him with his bloody sword simply because he's a combative kind of character. It's not that he hears noises and strikes out at them. He knows why he's fighting. He knows where he's going. He can see who his enemies are, and he sees what his goal is to be. He sees all that lies behind, and he sees what lies ahead. And that's what makes him persevere. Perseverance has to do with action, and it has to do with vision. Perseverance has to do with apprenticeship. I was asked if I could uh, recommend any books for the bookstall. I'm always totally at a loss when people say that to me. I think of all the books I've, many read, I've, I've read, many of them, and all the titles fly instantly out of my head. But I do have one which I didn't actually mention in response because I rather think is not available in this country. It's published by American InterVarsity Press, uh, and somebody will put me right if it is available here. It is by Eugene Peterson, and it's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I shall say more about that in a little while. In the opening chapter of his book, Gene uh, Peterson says this. There are two biblical designations for people of faith that are extremely useful. Disciple and Pilgrim. Now, Pilgrim, we've already thought about together in Mr. Valiant for Truth, in the Pilgrim's Progress. But it's the other one that he deals with first. Disciple, he says. The word disciple says that we are people who spend our lives apprenticed to our master, Jesus Christ. We are in a growing, learning relationship always. A disciple is a learner, but not in the academic setting of a schoolroom, rather at the work site of a craftsman. We do not acquire information about God, but skills in faith. Now that is very much the point of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2, when it speaks of Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Some of you know that um, uh, much earlier in my career as an Anglican clergyman, I had the great privilege of being one of the curates at All Souls Langham Place uh, when John Stott was the rector there. <clears throat> uh, John Stott's secretary at that time, and indeed still, uh, was and is Frances Whitehead. She is a great lady and was frequently known in All Souls in those days as the Soak. What is the SOAK, you ask? Well, S-O-A-K is an acronym for the source of all knowledge. <laughs> if you want any information about All Souls Langham Place or the work of the Reverend John Stott, you go to Francis and she will supply it. That's a very honourable designation, actually. 
And uh, Jesus is likewise the source of all our knowledge. And his scriptures are indeed a source of endless information about God. And we don't despise that. But it's not what Hebrews 12 is about. Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 is about another kind of learning. As Peterson says in the sentence I just quoted, our kind of learning is not about information, it is about skills. We are not filling our minds with knowledge about the Christian way. We are actually learning how to live it. And that's why it's not so much a schoolroom as an apprenticeship. We are not here to gather information, but to learn skills, which in the nature of things are then to be practiced. You learn them by practicing them. You practice them, that's how you learn them. Now, of course, we're well aware that uh, there are various kinds of skills in the ordinary secular world that we're very familiar with. Some of those skills are very specialized ones. When you are learning how to play an instrument, and maybe you discover you've got the gift as well as the skill, and you can do things that lots of other people can't do. Much more general than that sort of specialized skill is the sort of skill which you might say is uh, learning how to drive a car, for example. I imagine that there are rather more people in this gathering tonight who can drive cars than can play clarinets or big bass drums or whatever. A more generalized skill, more people can do it, but it's still a skill that has to be learned, and uh, you go on learning all the time you're driving, at least you're supposed to. There are some skills which are well-nigh universal skills, the kind of skills that we learned almost without realizing we were doing it. It always used to amaze me, French was the subject I studied at university, and when I first went over the Channel to France, I was absolutely astonished at the way the small children could all speak French, <laughs> which had taken me so much blood, toil, sweat and tears. Uh, why was it? Well, because they had literally learned it from their mother's knee. They just imbibed it. You begin to learn, and as you're actually practicing it, right from the very simplest language, it becomes second nature to you. And they learn their French in exactly the same way as I'd learn my English, without realizing it. And that is an almost universal skill in any country, learning the language of the folk that you live among. But whether it's a specialized skill or a more general skill or a well-nigh universal skill, it is something that you do actually have to learn, and you learn it by doing it. You are in an apprenticeship with your driving instructor or your piano teacher or the parents and the brothers and sisters and the schoolmates with whom you first learned your native language. Now that, says Hebrews chapter 12, is of the essence of perseverance. There are equivalents in our running of the race. The apprenticeship in learning to be a Christian disciple, which have to do with that long, long apprenticeship. And you see, it's a process in which time is of the essence. It is not an instant thing, and I want to return to that later on. It is precisely because you spend a long time doing these things and uh, you're practicing all the time and all the time you're doing them, you're learning more and you're practicing more. You work away until you can do it. And that's a great thing when you first discover that you can drive a car well enough to satisfy the examiner or to pass a music exam or whatever it may be. I remember the story of the frog who fell into a large bowl of cream and uh, large enough for him to be unable by swimming to reach the edge. But being a persevering kind of frog, he continued to swim and swim and swim until he was sitting on a pound of butter. So you see, you can achieve something. But the whole point of the apprenticeship picture is that you never stop improving. You go on, as it were, beyond the butter stage. Uh, you reach the point where, in a sense, you've reached your goal. You've achieved what you wanted to do. You pass an exam. But in the nature of things, this type of learning 
carries with it the perseverance which goes on beyond that. And you ought, in theory, to drive a car ever better and take an advanced test. And and a a pianist will certainly tell you this. They never stop practicing. They never stop trying to improve if they're a serious professional musician. Now, it's that apprenticeship which is of the essence of Christian perseverance. It's saying, I have never arrived, even now. um, I mean, for some few years past, I've been able to look back to the notes of the sermons that I preached 30 years ago and have retained, and sometimes I wonder why I retained them. And uh, into the WPB they go. Um, But I'm sure that if I really am serious about perseverance in Christian service and Christian ministry, then if I go on another 10 years, I should look back to the sermons of 1997 and say, well, I hope I've got beyond that sort of technique by now. I really should be progressing. I should be a, a little bit better, a little bit more able, a little bit more practiced in the Lord's service now than I was 10 years ago. Never ceasing to learn, never ceasing to practice. Perseverance has to do with apprenticeship. Before I tell you what my fourth word is, let me just tell you why this book of Jean Peterson's was called what it was called. He quotes from the German atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche, who saw this area of spiritual truth at least with great clarity, because there was a great deal else he didn't, but this area at least with great clarity, wrote, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. If an atheist, a rabidly anti-Christian philosopher, can say that, well, we will spoil the Egyptians and take good things wherever we find them. And I think that is a memorable phrase. It is the title of his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's actually a commentary on the Songs of Ascents, those psalms in the 120s, 130s of the Book of Psalms. Uh, which are all about the pilgrim journey up to Jerusalem. And it brings out of them all the lessons that are needed for a long obedience in the same direction. And so long is that obedience that it leads me to uh, think and to pass on to you the thought that perseverance has to do with history. Perseverance has to do with history. What we are told in the opening verses of Hebrews chapter 12 concerning ourselves and our own persevering race obviously has to do with the life that you and I are living here in the 1990s. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us which in the nature of things will be a race of 10 more years, 30 more years, 50 more years, another couple of weeks, who knows. But it's that sort of length. And what, as I look at Hebrews 11 as well as Hebrews 12, uh, what it is saying to me is this, that what the believer will discover in the span of a single life in our case, a life lived at the end of the 20th century, is in miniature what is written large in the whole of history. Because the same sort of thing has been going on. This is God's perseverance, if you like. He has been working it out in the experience of all his people over generations, centuries, millennia. That is why he says, therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, so that we can look back over history, the whole of history, back to the time of Christ and the thousands of years before it, and there find the same pattern working out through the millennia, 
then it's no great shakes, is it? Surely for us to say, well, I guess the Lord can take me through another X years here below in the end of the 20th century and perhaps a few years into the next one. If he can do the greater, certainly he can do the lesser. So perseverance has a great deal to do with history. It's that great cloud of witnesses who appear to us on every page of the scripture. These are the truths that emerge from history. And something that this historical connection tells me is that it winnows out what is lasting from what is ephemeral. There are all kinds of things. The very nature of history tells you that. If you read a history book about any historical incident, whatever, some historian has got down to sifting the facts and putting in the facts he chooses and discarding a great many others. That is what the writing of history is. There are any number of things that no longer matter. There are all kinds of things that are happening to us today which loom very large before our eyes. And I think it's very salutary for us sometimes to say now, will this matter in a hundred years' time? And uh, on, in a great many instances, the honest answer is, it will not matter two straws in a hundred years' time. Whatever decision it is I've got in front of me now. But some of them will. Some of them will. And history tells us that an awful lot of things will fall by the wayside. And as you look back over the history of our own time, over the last 2,000 years, and then back into Bible history, you begin to see the things that emerge from it. When you look at it with half-closed eyes, when you can't quite discern what was happening there, you say to yourself, is that a bank of mist or is it a range of mountains? And history begins to show to you, as with history... With the lapse of time, the mists evaporate, but the mountains remain. And you can see the things that really matter and the things that really last. And that's why perseverance has such a lot to do with history. The Bible examples tell us this. They say, now, these are the things that matter. Innumerable people came and went on the stage of the Middle East all through Bible times. The vast majority of them are totally forgotten. But here is Abraham, and here is Moses, and here are the great, craggy, historical examples of the faith. These are the mountains, never mind the mists. History has sifted them out for you. These are the things that matter, and these are the things that will teach you perseverance. The Bible examples given to us in Hebrews 11, many others besides, as the writer himself says, I don't have time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, all the rest of them. I could go on indefinitely, he says, pointing out to you the mountains. As for the mists, where have they gone? Who cares nowadays about Nebuchadnezzar? Who cares about some of these worthies who thought themselves so grand in their day? But these are the things that matter. These are the people from whom you can learn. It is sometimes said, I believe, incorrectly, but I love it just the same, that uh, a famous verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 means this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.11 is the verse where you may recall that Paul is doing the same sort of thing as the author of the Hebrews is doing here. Paul goes back in 1 Corinthians 10 over Israel's history and says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers did this, that, and the other thing in the time of the Exodus. And he goes through some of the events, and he says in verse 11, these things happened to them as examples, and they were written down as warnings for us on whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, maybe you've come across this interpretation, which says what that little word ends actually means is us upon whom the revenues of the ages have come. In other words, all these instances, all these amazing stories of Bible history are the treasures that have been heaped up through the generations for our benefit. And we are those upon whom the revenues of the ages have come. All this has been stored up stashed away in our bank account for us to use. 
Now, the most revered commentators on 1 Corinthians say that that's not actually what the word means. But I love it just the same. And I think it's true, even if 1 Corinthians 10.11 is not saying that. It is true, isn't it? And it's certainly what Hebrews 11 is saying, that you have all these instances of real people who had real experiences of God, and they are a vast hoard of treasure which are there for your benefit. You learn from them, you learn from history, and you can add to all those Bible examples, all the, the, the examples that come from outside Bible times, all the great biographies of our Christian era. Who reads biographies nowadays? I hope some of you do. I've got lots on my shelves that I intend to read when I retire. <clears throat> the great hymns of the past. Sometimes folk look in the uh, more traditional kind of hymn book and say, why is that antiquated old hymn still there? And my answer is, the reason it's still there is because it's proved that it lasts. And along with many good songs that are written in our days, there are many songs that are still there because they were good in their time and they are still good now. They partake of the nature of the mountains rather than of the mists. Good things from which we learn. They are some of the, the revenues of history. And they all help with the perseverance, you see. They say, now, these are the things that are proved all the way down history, and you will find it so in your little lifespan as well. Surely you can hold out. Surely you're prepared to make a go of it through the few years that are left for you compared with all the thousands of years through which God has been proving himself in all those instances. Perseverance has to do with history. Perseverance has to do with distinctiveness. I just want to take up again that thought of the things that last and the things that don't. The difference between the bank of mist and the range of mountains. Perseverance has to do with distinctiveness. It arises directly out of what I've just been saying. That's to say that perseverance is what makes God's people so distinctive. I want to refer once more, maybe twice more, once more at the moment anyway, uh, to this particular book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, because there is one psalm and one chapter in the book which are actually headed perseverance. The psalm is Psalm 129, not one of the best known of the psalms. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth, let Israel say. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Perseverance, says Peterson. That's his heading for the psalm. And in the second half of the psalm, a very interesting illustration is given. This is Psalm 129, verse 5. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the housetops, which withers before it can grow. With it the reaper cannot fill his hands, nor the one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now, suppose I said to you, isn't there a verse somewhere in the Bible that says, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. You might say, I'm sure I've come across that somewhere. And it might occur to you that you found it in the book of Ruth, where, again, it was about a harvest scene. Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem, we're told, as the barley harvest was beginning. And Ruth goes to work in the harvest field. And just then, Boaz, who owns the field, arrives from the town and greets the harvesters. The Lord be with you. And they call back, the Lord bless you. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Doesn't it come somewhere else in the Bible? Yes, it does. The last verse of Psalm 129. The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Except that there it is saying, may those who pass by not say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. So if you quote those words out of that psalm, you are misquoting them because the psalm says that's what people don't say. Now, why don't they say it? Well, the illustration is that of grass on the housetops, 
my grass on the housetops. And I think what we're supposed to visualize is an Israelite house with a flat roof, of course, and up on the roof, soil has been scattered. Insulation. Even nowadays, there are trendy folk who um, uh, want to be eco-friendly and all that, who um, uh, put grass over their houses. You know, you build a house underneath and put uh, uh, soil over the top of it, keep it warm, insulate it. Well, now they put uh, soil down on the flat roofs, and inevitably, even if they didn't sow it, seeds would come borne by the breeze and would fall down there, and they'd occasionally find weeds growing up and grass would grow up on the roof. But it's grass on the hilltops that withers before it can grow so that nobody comes past the house and looks up at the housetop and says, as the reapers do, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Wonderful harvest, isn't it? Lot to reap here. Well, of course there isn't. Not with the kind of grass that grows in the thin layer of soil on the housetop. It's got no depth. Nothing is expected to grow there. (coughs) Nothing will last from that kind of sowing. And what Psalm 129 is saying is that those who oppose the people of God, the opposition, the antagonists of God's people who make things difficult for them are to be like grass on the housetops which withers before it can grow. There's no harvest greeting about that sort of crop. It is not a true harvest at all. And you look down the perspective of history, and you see that what is distinctive about the people of God is that they have continued to flourish, whereas other nations around them are like the grass on the housetop, which just spring up, they have no depth of earth, and they wither away in no time. They didn't realize it. None of them thought so. The Assyrian comes down like a wolf on the fold and besieges Jerusalem, And he thinks he's the greatest. He has all the power, the most powerful empire of the Middle East up to that time, the greatest and the cruelest of all of them. And what is this Israelite nation? One of so many little nations of the Middle East in those days. Nothing compared to the might of Assyria. But history goes by, and you see that the perseverance of the people of God has led to Assyria being dusty inscriptions in a museum. They've been nothing, nothing real for 3,000 years. There is still a people of Israel. Still a harvest that grows. Still green. Astonishing. The king of Assyria would never have believed that if you told him that within a hundred years his great empire would have crumbled into dust. And that despised little nation that he'd gone to destroy, 3,000 years later, was still green and flourishing. That's the distinctiveness of the people of God, that they have this extraordinary capacity to persevere. What does it say? The distinctiveness of the people of God is something of that kind which stands out in our world also. One aspect of the world we live in is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Our sense of reality has been flattened by 30-page abridgments. It's not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel, but it is terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian discipleship is slim. In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold if it's packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There's a great market for religious experience in our world. There's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. 
Religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate leisure. For some, it's a weekly drawn to church. For others, occasional visits to special services. Some with a bent for religious entertainment and sacred diversion plan their lives around special events like retreats and rallies and conferences. We go to see a new personality, to hear a new truth, to get a new experience, and so somehow expand our otherwise humdrum lives. The religious life is defined as the latest and the newest. I'm quite sure that for a pastor in Western culture in the latter part of the 20th century, that which makes the work of Christians most difficult is what has been called today's passion for the immediate and the casual. And that is what makes persevering Christians so distinctive. They are not in that business. They are in the business of a long obedience in the same direction. They do not want quick, easy answers. And that leads me to the last of my six words. And that is that perseverance has to do with theology. Perseverance has to do with theology. I've been talking all the way through so far about perseverance in the practical sense. And I want to move on in this last few minutes to perseverance in the theological sense, which is not quite the same thing. Everything I've said so far has to do with Christians not letting up, with our keeping going. But there is a theological sense to the word perseverance, which has to do with God not letting up and his never letting go. As uh, a little um, exercise in naughtiness, I regret to say, I spent a happy half hour looking through the Methodist hymn book and Grace Hymns. Some of you may know both of those hymn books pretty well. The Methodist hymn book of, I think it's 1933, uh, not John Wesley's original 18th century version, the 1933 Methodist hymn book has a section called Pilgrimage, Guidance and Perseverance. And every hymn in it is about perseverance in the first sense. That is to say, about our keeping going. I looked at Grace Hymns, which is a hymnal for Baptist churches of the Reformed persuasion. And there, too, is a section on this subject headed Perseverance and Dependence. And every hymn in it is about perseverance in the second sense. That is to say, the fact that God keeps us going. Now, I don't want to make cheap jibes in either direction, but I do think it's interesting that Methodism, which had that general Arminian cast of theology, assumes that what perseverance means is our keeping going. May I say that it is full of good hymns also, the great Wesleyan hymns, Charles Wesley at his finest, about what God does. God, God is the one who keeps Methodists going as well. But nevertheless, the sense of the word is assumed to be that we have to persevere. Whereas from the Calvinist side, the sense of the word is that it is God who keeps us going. Both are true. Both are true. All I've said so far has to do with our perseverance, our action, our vision, our apprenticeship, our history, our distinctiveness. But perseverance has to do also with theology and a theological sense of the word and the fact that God never lets go. It was a very noble prayer that Sir Francis Drake is said to have prayed on the day that he sailed into the harbour at Cadiz to singe the beard of the King of Spain. You probably know the prayer. Lord God, when thou givest to thy servants to endeavour any great matter, grant us also to know that it is not the beginning, 
but the continuing of the same until it be thoroughly finished, which yieldeth the true glory. That is a great prayer and a noble sentiment. And that really, in some way, I, I don't know what real faith Francis Drake had, but it expresses the real prayer of the Christian who says, I want to persevere. But the Christian also needs the underpinning of Hebrews 12. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And what is meant by that is not simply that the Christian looks to Jesus for an example to imitate. Jesus is not another example in the same category as all the examples of chapter 11, of all the people who said one by one, you see, I could do it. I discovered that I could persevere, therefore you can as well. That's what they all say. I believed, I acted on my belief, and, and I got through. That's a great thing, all those examples of human perseverance. That's what chapter 11 is for. But when we look to Jesus in chapter 12, verse 2, it is not simply to see Jesus persevering and be inspired to follow his example. It is also to see in him the work of God which carries his purpose through. It was because his heart was at one with his father's heart and God would see to it and therefore the Lord Jesus himself would see to it that the work was persevered with until it was completed. And when Jesus says it is finished, it was not simply, oh, I've endured. Oh, I've lasted out. Oh, in the words of the authorized version, I've been patient. Although he was patient, of course. But it was much more than that. He was saying, this is God's work that God has done. And when you look to Jesus, who is both the author and the perfecter of your faith, why, then you begin to see that there is a power there which you are latching onto. And it's not simply looking into yourself for the resources to keep you going. It is looking to Jesus for that unstoppable, inexorable, ongoing power of God. He will see to it that his work is done and will not fail. Here's my last quotation. The writer of Hebrews sang a litany of people who lived by faith, that is, people who centered their lives on the righteous God, who stuck by them through thick and thin in such a way that they were able to persevere. They lived with uncommon steadiness of purpose and with the most admirable integrity. None of them lived without sin. They all made their share of mistakes and engaged in episodes of disobedience and rebellion. But God stuck with them so consistently and surely that they learned how to stick with God. That's the theological meaning of the word perseverance. And it is out of that litany that comes this call. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you both for the challenge to perseverance for ourselves and the reassurance and encouragement of the unfailing perseverance of your work with us. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much indeed, Michael, for that. Now let, let us do what we did last week, which is not to leave the room, um, but simply just to take a pause for a couple of minutes, stand up if you want to, and walk about if you want to, but please don't leave the room. In two minutes' time, we'll resume and... We're here to take your comments, if you would like to do that, or any questions you'd like to ask of Michael to expand 
something that he said or perhaps add something that you wished you had said and hadn't. Let's do that for two minutes. Who would like to, uh, to say something? It can be a question, it can be a comment. Don't be afraid to do that. Yes. Some of us persevere for many years in one place. When is it right for us to shake the dust from our feet? You hear the question, some of us persevere for a long time in one place. When it is time to get up and go? Is that a question? Yes, it is a question. Michael would like to answer that. <laughs> You're just about to do that. I'll say something off the top of my head, then somebody else can give a considered opinion. <laughs> um, uh, maybe one way to look at it is, uh, is to think of what God is doing as an ongoing process, um, uh, of which your perseverance in one place is only a part. In other words, there's an ongoing, something is happening all the time. Um, and there, if it is right for your continued service of the Lord to start somewhere else, uh, then you ask for pointers to that. As, I, as I'm sure you would do, um, but uh, bearing in, in the back of your mind the sense that the work is actually continuing, uh, even if uh, the Lord moves you to somewhere else to do it and somebody else to where you've been to do it. I feel that way very much at the moment. Come the end of the year. <laughs> yes. I wonder if you could clarify when you spoke about in the history there are mountains and mists and the, the mists become nothing it's the mountains that are important I find great difficulty reading Leviticus because of all the ceremonial law which is now passed and finished with fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ why the, has the, the, the Holy Spirit recorded these if they're myths in history and I have to plough through them because I've got to be faithful and say well God has recorded these I can't skip them these are the easy questions first <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say that whatever you find in the scripture even if it's the difficult bits of Leviticus that's part of the mountains uh, those are the things that have endured um, uh, and we ask ourselves why they're there. They're certainly not the mists. Uh, what I meant by the mists was uh, all the other civilizations of those days that have long since crumbled and disappeared. Um, but everything that pertains to the, uh, to the life and culture of Israel, uh, that's part of the absolute solid truth. And our problem is to find what it means and how it relates to life today, as you say. Uh, so much of it um, is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's part of that great mountain uh, everything that you find in scripture in some way or other belongs to that doesn't it um, what I had in mind by the mist were the kind of things that people thought no doubt at the time were hugely important but uh, nowadays who cares but uh, we do care about Leviticus <laughs> thank you yes uh, Ian just, just a point on, on the issue of perseverance, something which has been kind of, uh, implied, mentioned in, in, in passing way. But do you think that part of the reason we struggle as Christians to develop in our Christian life is, I was reading Tozerich, and he was saying that, uh, he said in, in one of his articles, that many years ago the church has failed, has lost, a whole, has really lost the hope of uh, the second coming and something which used to be very real to the church and a real longing and a real hunger for that Christ coming, uh, second uh, coming has been lost, has become something that doctrinally we, we, we believe but in reality it doesn't really agree <coughs> and he, he suggested three, um, three reasons for that one of which particularly challenged me he said that uh, in, in fundamentalist theology we now uh, look at the cross in very theological and in contractual terms uh, as opposed to personal terms, and we, we look at the theology of the cross so much that we actually miss uh, the beauty of the one who died on it. And do you think that uh, as, a, as, a, as a church these days we have lost, uh, to a great extent, the real hunger for the second, the return of the Lord, and, and what impact that does have on the lack of perseverance in, in Christian life? 
Did you all hear that? Then I won't repeat it. <laughs> I suppose it's always true, isn't it? I, I'd like to think that it's less true now than it has sometimes been um, in our century, that there are many believers who love the Lord's appearing and, uh, and looking forward to it. I was very interested, you said that, that... Um, uh, the, the other place in Hebrews where this same word perseverance comes is at the, is at the end of chapter 10. Um, where are we? 10 verse 36. Uh, Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he's promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Um, so, and the perseverance is directly related, as you've said, uh, to the return of Christ. Um, and I, th I think, uh, I was just trying to remember the comment in F.F. F. Bruce's commentary on that verse. Uh, it's, it's something like um, how easy it, it must have been for Christians uh, when they lost sight of the second coming or it seemed long delayed uh, to lose the perseverance aspect as well. And so he renews that, that vision of he who is coming will come uh, and, and that revives the perseverance. It's a very important point, isn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Please don't be afraid. It's John, yes. Um, uh, what Calvin meant by perseverance, and one of his uh, tenets is the perseverance of the saints, isn't it? Um, I always took that to uh, to mean the uh, eternal survival of the Christian. Uh, I suppose that comes into your theological uh, description of perseverance. But um, do you think he had in mind all those things you were talking about, or was that just the one thing that he was thinking about? I would have thought that um, uh, when he talks about, well, survival, yes, but um, uh, it's the once saved, always saved. You know, once uh, he has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. And um, uh, when he says that the perseverance of the saints uh, is the survival, yes, it means that once God has made me a part of him, then I'm a part of him uh, in his eternity, um, so that it necessarily includes all the living of, uh, of the Christian life here. Um, and it means that, uh, as the, one of the quotations I made said, we all sin and there'll be many mistakes and many failures and all sorts of things. Um, but I know that because I, I'm a part of him, uh, I belong to him in his son, uh, and he will carry me right through, uh, that there is bound to be perseverance in both senses. Um, my guess, I'm, I, I'm not inside the mind of Calvin. Uh, my guess is that he, he thought of all that, yes. Um, he got the whole package in his mind when he talked in those terms. Yeah, he was a wise man. Uh, Reg? I wonder, Mike, I wonder, Mike, whether you could um, say how, as a minister, a preacher, you might help Christians to counteract this fact that everything must be immediate in its effect because we are bombarded, say, radio and television news. You know, it's, it's the latest of soundbite. must seem to be right and work it out rather than the enduring policy consistently followed that will produce results. Now, have you sort of any suggestions, maybe an impossible question, how can that, in teaching Christians, how can we encourage Christians to see the wrongness of that and to respond with the right kind of perseverance. Well, again, off the top of my head, Rachel, it seems to me that, that that whole instant mindset is not true even on its own terms. Uh, that's to say that people who, who live that way, who've, uh, as it were, sold out to the, to the instant culture, um, have to admit when it's pointed out to them that not even their own secular lives are in fact totally like that, um, and the type of very simple and obvious illustration that I was using under the heading of apprenticeship. Um, uh, and you can say now, now you know perfectly well that things, not everything is instant. Um, you cannot instantly learn to drive a car. 
there are all sorts of, uh, of illustrations in the ordinary world around us uh, of things that actually have to be done slowly and gradually. Um, you, you can't bake a cake in 10 seconds. Uh, all kinds of very simple things um, which I would hope would redress the balance um, because to say that everything has to be done done yesterday, that the whole instant attitude of our society um, is, is only one half of the truth, even of secular society itself. Uh, and I think that has to be combated and, and, and said loud and clear uh, that, that you've got two different kinds of illustrations um, to use, one of quick things and the other of slow things.